Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com UFF to get started. Doug Brignoli is a former winner of Mr. America and Mr. Universe Bodybuilding Competition with a 43-year trajectory in the sport. He's an expert in biomechanics and the author of a groundbreaking new book called The Physics of Resistance exercise, which is turning the traditional weight training paradigm upside. Doug is the first person in the history of the fitness industry to outline the 16 biomechanical factors, which determine the value of an exercise, allowing us to evaluate the productivity, efficiency, and safety of each exercise, allowing us to select only the best exercises and skip the exercises that have low value. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. In the early years of bodybuilding, it was considered vain and dishonorable to pursue aesthetics. What's changed since then? <laughs> well, unfortunately, not much. <laughs> uh, well, I, I shouldn't say not much. I will say that we still prioritize lifting heavy weight more than we should. Um, obviously, bodybuilding now has become a very common thing. Back in the early 1900s, um, the magazines, the physical culture magazines, only talked about strength and health. Uh, sometimes in small cursive letter, they would sort of whisper, oh, bodybuilding forum in the back. <laughs> but but it, wasn't, it wasn't really uh, considered uh, an honorable thing to pursue aesthetics. Why is it naive to assume that the heavier weight you're moving, the more you are loading a muscle? Well, because whenever we lift a weight, let's just say we're doing a barbell curl, we have to understand that there's physics involved. There, there is a lever that's being pulled on by a muscle, in this case, the forearm. And the forearm is influenced by physics factors, meaning the length of the forearm and the angle of that forearm relative to the direction of resistance. So for example, if I, well, the, the example I typically use is a pendulum. If you look at a pendulum, let's say a grandfather clock, um, it's got the weight at the bottom. If, if you don't start that thing in motion, it'll just stay there in the neutral vertical position forever because that is parallel with the direction of gravity. Um, if you were to move that pendulum over to the side a little bit, it would wanna come back to the neutral position. And it's important to understand what is the angle that would give you the most downward force back to the neutral position, and that is the horizontal angle. In other words, when a lever is perpendicular to gravity, it has the most force, the most want, to want to return back to that neutral position. That means that if horizontal is maximum and vertical is neutral is zero, that means a 45 degree angle would be a 50% amount of effort. So, and of course, everything in between. So um, rather than bragging about how much weight you actually lifted with an exercise that utilizes inefficient mechanics, inefficient in the sense that it diminishes the load to the muscle, we should be bragging about how much load we got on a muscle with how little weight. So you can load a muscle more with less weight based on the kind of physics you're using. Right. I and mean, the, the example I typically use is when you load a muscle, it doesn't know what you're holding in your hand. It just knows how much force it has to produce in order to move that weight. So let's just say it has to produce 90 pounds of force in order to move this weight. It might be 
90% of the 100 pounds you're lifting, or it might be 30% of the 300 pounds you're lifting. Either way, the muscle doesn't know or care. It only knows the 90 pounds of force it has to produce, but the skeleton knows 300 pounds of force. So it's foolish to squat with a 200 pound or 300 pound barbell on your spine, because while you're doing that, your lower leg is only tipping forward from the neutral zero position, 30 degrees. It's not even going to the 45 degree angle, much less the horizontal angle. So you're only getting about 30% of what's on your back. And then, uh, and by the way, the lower leg is being operated by the quadricep muscle. So you're getting a 70% reduction of the load to the quadricep. And the gluteus is being operated by the femur, the upper leg bone. And even though that one does get horizontal, it's being essentially shortened by the fact that the lower leg, which is the secondary lever, because it's connected to the, to the primary lever, is doubling under it. And so instead of having an 18 inch long lever operating the glute, you have a nine inch lever operating the glute. So both of those are now diminished resistances and you add more weight to your spine and further compress your spine in order to compensate for the inadequacies of this loading. When what you really should be doing is doing a better exercise for the quadricep like a sissy squat and a better exercise for the glutes like a glute bridge. Does a muscle know if it's working alone or if it's working at the same time other muscles are working? Well, this is the irony is that we have, we have so um, sanctified resistance, I mean, uh, compound exercises that we have somehow made the foolish assumption that each participating muscle that is doing its share of the work during a compound exercise is how much benefiting more than it would if it was doing its own thing, its own way. In other words, a muscle has no idea whether other muscles are working at the same time or not. However, there may be some disadvantages. Um, we have this neurological thing that happens in our body called reciprocal inhibition. And what that basically means, and by the way, this happens to everyone, even if you don't know that it's happening, and even if you don't know how to pronounce this thing, um, if you do a bicep curl, a barbell curl, a dumbbell curl, and you activate the bicep, the tricep shuts off. Hmm. It's doing that in order to not impede the action of the bicep. This is what the central nervous system does in order for us to be coordinated. Otherwise we would be spastic. We would be contracting in multiple directions at the same time and our body disallows that. So when you're activating the gluteus, which is a hip extensor, you are deactivating the hip flexors. Well, one fourth of the quadricep is a hip flexor. It's the only one of the four muscles that actually has that secondary purpose. The other three parts of the quadricep only extend the knee but the rectus femoris participates in the extension and also in hip flexion. So you're shutting off your rectus femoris, which is part of your quadricep, when you activate the gluteus. So it's foolish to put 300 pounds on your back, compress your spine, get a diminished percentage of load to the quadricep, a diminished percentage of load to the gluteus, and also deactivate a significant percentage of the quadricep. The brain is basically doing this mind-muscle connection on its own without you doing it purposefully. Right, it's, it's preventing interference. Now, compound movements are multi-joint, multi-muscle movements that some people refer to as functional. Does this suggest that something that isn't compound is dysfunctional? Well, that's a fantastic question. Absolutely not. You know, if you were to, let's say, earn $100 in 10 different places, you're going to make $1,000 and you can spend that $1,000 all at one time if you want or any way you want. The body is the same way. If you strengthen all the muscles separately, all the muscles can easily work together when they need to. 
Mm. The idea that they can only work together if you train them together is absurd. A lot of the firefighters that I work with think that they need functional fitness in order to be in the best shape for the job. Do you think functional fitness is a myth or is all bodybuilding functional? If I were training someone for a particular sport or a particular activity, let's just say that part of the firefighting activity requires something that resembles a squat. I would have them, I would have this person doing squats in addition to leg extension, sissy squats, gluteus, you know, glute bridges or multi-hip machine or whatever. In other words, there is a benefit to mimicking a sports move or a work move from the coordination standpoint. Mm. Um, but it's, there is no real benefit in terms of strength. The strength that you gain in each participating muscle from isolation exercises is just as usable just as functional as it would be if you activated those muscles in a compound exercise. So bodybuilders do not need deadlift squats, bent over barbell rows or overhead presses. Well, absolutely not. I, I would say that the only people that should be doing uh, a heavy squat are people that are competing in that event because you have to learn that movement and deal with its mechanical inefficiencies um, in, the, in the sport. But there's a huge risk to that. Um, in terms of exercises like a bent over barbell row, the bent over barbell row <laughs> is a ridiculous exercise. <laughs> it is absolutely ridiculous. It was, it was grandfathered in. And so people think that because it's an old school exercise, it must be good. But let me explain three things here. One is that the lats pull downward. They pull from the upper arm bone, the humerus, down towards the lower two thirds of the spine and the upper part of the pelvis. That's the way the direction of those fibers run. They pull downward. So a bent over row is not a downward pull. The middle trapezius, which is the bigger muscle of the upper inner back, doesn't even pull on the arms. It doesn't even cross the shoulder joint. It only pulls the scapula back, the shoulder blades back. So when you're doing a bent over barbell row, you're doing neither of the two primary motions that your back muscles actually do. And while you're doing that, you're loading your lower back with not only the weight of the barbell that you're holding, but also the weight of the torso and the length magnification of the, of the torso on that barbell. Hmm. So you're getting more lower back strain by far than you are any kind of latissimus benefit or middle trapezius benefit. And then is time under tension or lifting to failure or near failure important, or is volume what we should be focused on? Well, for those uh, listeners that don't know what these terms even mean, volume means the number of, of countable repetition. And volume is essentially the same thing as time under tension. So when they talk about time under tension, um, obviously the assumption is the more time under tension, the better. But that can also be translated as the more countable reps, the more reps that are worth counting because they have the right intensity level um, produce the same benefit. So the idea of time under tension usually refers to fatigue. Mm. And that's the part of time under tension that's, that's false, that's mistaken. Fatigue alone, not even primarily, is what triggers muscle development or muscle strength. It does trigger muscle endurance, obviously. If you introduce fatigue to a muscle, it's going to adapt with a response that says, okay, I'm going to need to figure out how to do this better, deal with this fatigue better. But endurance training is a lot different than strength training and a lot different than, than the kind of training you'd use to produce muscle growth. So when you can get muscle growth using a lighter weight and higher reps, if that is done to failure. Mm -hmm. So let's just say you're going to use a weight uh, 
for whatever exercise and you're going to try to do 50 reps with it and you've selected the weight right, which means that by the time you get to 30 or 35, it's starting to really, really burn. By the time you get to 45, you're practically failing. By the time you get to 49, you are essentially failing. Your 50th rep is a quarter rep because you failed. Okay, that will produce growth because you recruited a lot of muscle fibers. High, high, high fatigue recruits a lot of fibers. However, it also produces a lot of lactic acid and a lot of systemic stress, which means that you can't do too many more of those sets. So that's what you have. You have one set of, of high fiber activation, and that's pretty much it. But some people think that's okay because they think they've sent the muscle the signal for adaptation. Well, and in part they have, they've caused it to recruit a lot of fibers. And so you're going to get growth. And if you do one set of, let's say, very heavy six repetitions of the same exercise, because you're using a weight that's heavy enough to limit you to six reps, you now are in that 80% range, 80% maximum effort that starts recruiting fibers from the very first rep. You don't have to get to failure with a heavy weight in order to start high fiber recruitment. That means that by the time you get to your sixth rep, even if you could have done a seventh or eighth and stopped, you still got high fiber recruitment. And now you have less lactic acid and less systemic fatigue. So now you can do three, four, five more sets just like that and get more quote unquote time under tension or volume. So how do you evaluate the efficiency of a resistance exercise? Well, when I talk about efficiency, I'm talking about the amount of muscle load versus the amount of weight it took to get that, right? So let's just say you're doing an overhead press and the overhead press you're intending for the deltoids, which is not, it's not even the motion that the either side deltoid or front deltoid do best. So it's already compromised in that sense. It's not what the joint is designed to do, but you're using half the arm length because your arm is bent. Your forearm is mostly vertical. So it's essentially a neutral lever at that point. The upper arm bone is now only as long as it typically is, which is about 10 inches. Um, if you were to strengthen, straighten your arm with a straight arm side raise, you'd have an arm that's, you know, two and a half times longer, two and a half times the magnification. So when someone wonders, why can't I do a very heavy side raise? It's because you have two and a half times the magnification that's in your hand, or I should say two and a half times more than the bent arm. You have a 20 inch lever, 25 inch lever, as opposed to a 10 inch lever. Um, and so what we should be worrying about is, is how much, of course, I'm not expecting everyone to do math when they do working out. Mm -hmm. But if you know that the longer lever is going to load the muscle more and, the, and, the, and, and, and using, let's say, uh, if, I, if I can compare the barbell squat to a sissy squat, a sissy squat, for those that don't know, is when you lean back and you do kind of a limbo type of movement where you're sort of trying to duck underneath the bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so your lower leg ends up getting nearly horizontal. So you can actually calculate this and say that if you were using a 200 pound barbell on a barbell squat and you weigh 200 pounds, it's 400 pounds divided by two legs, it's 200 pounds. And then you measure the length of the femur and the angle of that femur relative to gravity, you can calculate that you're getting about 924 pounds of load on each quadricep. But the cost of doing that is this 200 pound barbell on your spine. If you are the same 200 pound guy and you do a sissy squat you can load each of your quadriceps with about 1,210 pounds of load without anything on your spine. So that clearly is a much more efficient 
way of loading your quadriceps than would be trying to do this diluted version that requires you to use more weight in order to get close to as much load. So you take this energy cost versus degree of muscle loading, range of motion, alignment, joint integrity, et cetera, with the BRIG-20. So why and how did you come up with this list of exercises for each muscle? Well, the BRIG-20 are the 20 best exercises, resistance exercises, approximately one or two for each of the primary muscle groups of the body. So let's just say you're going to, <clears throat> you're going to look at a, a, a bench press, a barbell press. You're on your back. Um, and your hands are on this barbell about two and a half feet apart. Well, that means that when you conclude that movement, your arms are not coming together, which means your pectoral muscles are not actually fully shortening, fully contracting. You're also using a single object, a singular tool, rather than two separate dumbbells. So that means that now you're getting, um, you're, you're losing this thing called cross-education, which is when we do uh, independently loaded limbs, each muscle sends a percentage of its benefit to the opposite side. You don't get that when you're using a single instrument. Um, and so you can, you can look at all this checklist. There's, there's 16 factors. You can look at this checklist and say, does it meet this one? Yes, no. Does it meet that one? Yes, no. Is there any neurological interference? Yes, no. Is it a longer or shorter lever? Is the lever mostly active or mostly neutral? Meaning is your limb mostly vertical or mostly horizontal, and you can go through this whole checklist and you see that the ones that, that have the highest um, value are the ones that meet all the criteria on this 16 list. So starting with the pecs, you've chosen the semi-decline dumbbell press or the semi-decline cable press, and the decline will hit the upper chest as well? Yeah. What people have to understand when it comes to, to chest muscles is if you were to stand in front of a, a mirror and just with, let's say you take your shirt off and you put your arms out to the side. So your arms are parallel to the ground, draw an imaginary line straight through from one hand to the other hand, which goes right across your clavicles. Now ask yourself, what percentage of my pectoral muscles are above that line or below that line? And you realize that 100% of your pectoral muscles are below your shoulder line. 0% is above the shoulder line. When you do an incline press, you're moving your arms in a direction that is above the shoulder line. You're moving it toward your chin. There's no pectoral muscle on your chin. All muscles pull toward their origin. They can do nothing other than pull toward their origin. So you would literally have to have pectoral muscle on your chin. So the idea of doing incline presses is literally absurd because we are moving our arms in a direction where there are no pectoral fibers. If you're doing a flat dumbbell press, you're already moving your arms towards the highest area where there is any pectoral muscles, but you're not moving your arms to an area where there are the most pectoral fibers. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to move your arms in, in a direction where the most, where you're gonna do the most benefit, it would be towards the middle of your sternum, which is slightly below your shoulder line, which constitutes a slight decline angle of arm movement. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about decline, we typically mean a decline bench. But, it, but we should be referring to a decline angle of movement relative to the torso. The arms are moving relative to the torso. So you can, if you have a hard time, let's say, lying on a decline bench, or you don't have a decline bench, or you don't like the decline exercise, you can do the same thing by sitting on an upright bench with a backrest and, and setting a, a pair of cables up so that the direction of resistance is back and slightly up hmm. so that you can then move your arms forward and slightly down opposite that backward direction of resistance. And you'd be moving your arms toward the center of your sternum. 
And for upper back or middle trapezius, you like the seated scapular retraction with cables, which I've never tried. How do you perform this one correctly? The thing about the middle trapezius is I encourage everyone to Google muscles of the, of the back or muscles of the upper back. And what you will see is that the, the middle trapezius, the trapezius in general, is the biggest muscle of your back aside from the latissimus. So and we already know the latissimus muscles pull the arms down and in toward the spine, toward the origin of those muscles. So when you want to work your middle trapezius, the upper inner part of your back, um, the idea of doing a standard rowing exercise is ridiculous because for one thing, a, a standard rowing is mostly arm exercise. It's mostly arm movement. And the middle trapezius don't even connect to the arms. They only pull the shoulders back. So when you're doing a scapular retraction with cables, what you would typically do is you would set the cables apart about maybe two and a half, three feet, maybe yeah, three, three feet. Uh, and then you would have them set like right around the middle of your sternum, right in the middle of your torso. And you would grab each of the handles, the left one coming from a slightly leftward angle and the right one coming from a slightly rightward angle. And then you just pull your shoulders back, squeeze that in between your spine and then release your shoulders so that your spine spreads and your shoulders spread, your scapula spread, and then you pull them back. And that is the exclusive function of the biggest muscle of the upper inner back, the middle trapezius. What do you say to people who swear by farmer's carries for traps? As I said, in physics, all levers that are parallel with gravity are neutral. So when you're doing a farmer's carry, the lower leg, the upper legs, the arms, the torso, all of those limbs are parallel with gravity. They're all in the neutral position. So we have to ask ourselves, what is horizontal? Well, the collarbone is horizontal and that's being operated by the trapezius, as you said. The feet are horizontal and that's being operated by the calves. The fingers that are looping underneath the, the weight are horizontal. So you're strengthening your grip, which of course is probably the least of your concerns. Um, you're not getting the best calf exercise, although you are getting some degree of calf loading because you're not using full range of motion. And the same is true for the trapezius. Yes, you are loading the trapezius, but you're not working the trapezius as well as they could be worked because doing so would require full range of motion, full elongation and full contraction of that muscle. And for lats, you like the one arm lat pull in with cables. Is this different than a lat pull down? Well, if you, if you imagine a lat pull down, you've got your hands about two and a half feet apart and at the top, right? And when you come down, your arms are still the same distance apart. Hmm. But, but if you were to, um, let's say, grab a, a cable on the left and a cable on the right, you would notice that the concluding movement ends with your hands much closer together than they started at the top because you're pulling inward toward the center. So by using a, a pull-down bar, you're limiting the, the amount of range of motion. The, the lat muscle actually contracts when your upper arm is all the way down against the side of your body. Mm -hmm. And that's far from where it ends when you're doing a regular lat pull down because you just, you can't let go. You can't slide your hands in on that bar. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, one arm is best. And the other reason why one arm is best is because um, if you were to um, let your arm do what your arm naturally wants to do, um, you would notice that you would let your arm go straight to the side on the upswing and when you pull the arm down, you would actually want to rotate toward the arm. So you're more facing the cable rather than having be alongside you. And that is the right 
healthy anatomical motion for the shoulder. You don't want that arm to be straight alongside you when it's down. Is there a chin up variation that mimics closely? There is a lat pull down uh, variation in, in that you can leave one arm up mm-hmm. and then pull the, the, let's say the right arm all the way down and in, and then do that to the left side. You can do that, but to do it with a chin up bar would be almost impossible because the one huge, huge problem that exists, and this is number 16 on this 16 factor list, is the ability to select the right amount of weight in order to use good form in order to, and in order to do the, 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 you know, the right number of repetitions. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone who can barely get three or four repetitions um, on a chin-up, you, you, it would be like going to the, to, to the weight stack and picking you know, body weight or more, and then trying to do two or three reps with it. I mean, the reason why we have selectorized equipment or a variety of dumbbells is so that we can choose the right resistance level for the strength of our particular muscle at this particular point in time with good form. When you're doing chin-ups or push-ups or anything like that, you're, 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 it's all or nothing. Parallel bar dips, one of the worst. It's all or nothing, and it's too much usually. For side delts, you chose the one-arm cable side raise with the pulley set at hip height. Why the pulley at hip height? Okay, so let me explain that. Um, again, when we're talking about efficiency of, of resistance exercise, one of the requirements is that that the, the operating lever, the limb that's being operated by your target muscle, interact perpendicularly with the direction of resistance. Okay, so... Um, before I segue into that, let me just tell you, if you were going to compare a, a, a parallel bar dip for triceps versus a lying on your back dumbbell tricep extension, also known as skull crusher, you would see that you're going to get, as a, as a, as a 180-pound guy, you're going to get 119 pounds of load on each tricep doing parallel bar dips because your forearm is mostly vertical the entire time. Hmm. You can get a pair of 20-pound dumbbells and lie flat on your back and get 240 pounds of load on each tricep because your forearm gets horizontal. So that's a maximally efficient lever when it's horizontal and and a neutral or mostly neutral lever is when it's mostly vertical. So if you're doing a standing side raise, when you start that exercise, the, the the limb that's being operated by the deltoid is vertical. The upper arm bone is vertical. When you're starting, that means there's zero load on your deltoid in the starting position. And it doesn't reach maximum load until the end of the range of motion, but that resistance curve, I'll explain that in just a second, is the opposite of what is ideal. The resistance curve um, should match the strength curve of the muscle. And the strength curve of the muscle is that all muscles are stronger in the early part of the range of motion and weaker, less strong toward the end of the range of motion when that muscle contracts and fully shortens. So it, it is foolish to give ourselves an exercise that gives us no resistance where we're stronger and the most resistance where we're weaker. So ideally what you want to do is you want to load up the early phase of the range of motion. Now you don't need cables to do that for deltas. You can lie on the ground on your side with a dumbbell. And now you'll notice that your upper arm bone is horizontal. It is perpendicular to gravity. So when you start that side raise, you are starting with the most resistance when your muscle is strongest. And as you move into the upward vertical position, the muscle, as the muscle gets weaker, the resistance diminishes. You can do the same thing with cables. Just put the cable so that it's straight across from your wrist and the beginning of the range of motion. And you're getting the same kind of perpendicular starting resistance that you just got by using the dumbbells. 
And for front deltoids, we'll do the seated cable front press or lying supine dumbbell front press. Why this over front raises? You want to load the early phase and not the late phase. So when you're doing a standing front raise, let's say you're doing a standing barbell front raise and your palms are facing down, which is the typical way it's done. So the, 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 what ends up happening is the femur, excuse me, the humerus, the upper arm bone, will angle itself relative to the position of the hand. So when your hands are palms down and your elbow is pointing out to the sides, the part of the deltoid that has rotated to the upper part of this action, which is opposite gravity, I, I, I hate to think that I'm losing some of the people here without any visuals, but you, when you're doing a, a standing front raise, you aren't even actually angling the upper arm bone in the right position to target the front deltoid. You would have to be palms up in order to rotate your arm around enough so your elbow is pointing down and your front deltoid is then on the upper part uh, opposite the downward pull of resistance. So the first thing that has to happen is you have to rotate your arm and then you have to load the early phase. And so you can do this by lying on your back on a flat bench and you take a pair of dumbbells and you turn your palms up toward your face and then you bring the dumbbells down alongside, you bring your elbows alongside your torso bring the dumbbells down to about your waist level, still palms up, and then just push the dumbbells straight up and over your shoulders. Now you're loading the early phase and you're also stretching. You get the benefit of stretch, a full elongation that you don't get with a standing barbell front raise. So you're getting better range of motion, early phase loading, diminishing toward the end of the range of motion and better angle for the humerus. And you can do the same thing with cables. Again, you can do the same thing. You can do anything you want with cables because you, you choose the direction of resistance. When we're using free weight, we were obligated to use the downward pull of gravity. So when I'm doing these front raises with my grip, like a thumbs up position, I'm not hitting the front. Yes. If you're doing thumbs up, if you're doing like a hammer grip, alternate mm -hmm. front raise, you are now exposing the front deltoid to the opposing resistance better than the other way around, but you're still end phase loading. Okay. And not only are you end phase loading, you're also creating a situation that's very easy to create swing. It's very easy. Once the weight starts to get heavy, to start kind of like throwing your torso back to get the weight up. And, and that's something you cannot do when it's early phase loaded. And for rear delts, you like the one arm cross body cable row or two arm cross cable rear laterals. Why are these superior to the reverse pec deck? Well, the first thing that has to be said, again, all muscles pull toward their origin. So if you were to imagine an, an anatomy, you're, let's say you're looking at an anatomy chart, you would see that the rear deltoid starts on the upper edge of the scapula uh, and, it, and it angles downward, semi-diagonally, but almost vertically down and connects to the outer part of your humerus, your upper arm bone. So uh, in order to bring the, or the insertion of that muscle toward the origin, all you have to do is bring it back, right? So the idea that you need to move your arm to the side so that it's perpendicular to your torso is ridiculous. It's not necessary. It complicates things more. Oh, like when you're doing a standard row, like if you're doing a one-arm dumbbell row, you are actually doing a rear deltoid exercise. Mm -hmm. The thing we have to keep in mind is that the lats and the middle trapezius, because the middle trapezius don't even connect to the arm, but the lats cannot, do not pull your elbow behind your body. The lats are pulling toward the spine where they're anchored, right? So the only muscle that pulls your elbow back is the rear deltoid and assisted by the teres major. But the point is that, that not everyone has cables. And if you do have uh, cables, it's fantastic. You can do them one arm at a time or two arms at a time. The resistance for the right rear deltoid 
should come from in front of you and slightly to the left, mm. opposite the rear deltoid position. When you're doing the, le the left rear deltoid, it should come from the right slightly. So you, you want it to, to be on the right side of your body. And then all you need to do is move your arm from a position that starts right in front of you, right around the, 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 the level of your sternum. And, and at that, not only at that same level, but the same vertical line, and then just move your arm down and back in what would be considered almost a downward, an upside down V toward the outside slightly, but mostly down and as far back as you can. And that is the best movement for the rear delta. And if you don't have cables, you can use an elastic band, um, which are not as good as cables, but they're not so bad. Or you can just bend over and, and assume the position that you might assume for a, a, a one arm dumbbell row. But now with an arm straight and a lighter dumbbell, you would create that same upside down V movement, but with a dumbbell. Hmm. And for upper traps, you can't beat the standing shrugs with cables or dumbbells. Which cable machine attachment do you like for these? Is it the single handle or rope or a straight bar or what? Oh, I use the handles because I don't want, I don't want to have my hands in front of my body nor on the side of my body, I mean, behind my body. I want my hands right alongside my thighs. And if I'm using a bar, there's no way that I can do that. So the handles allow my hands to be straight down from my shoulder, right alongside my thighs as I come up. And I, I like cables better because I can set the pulleys apart just a little bit so that my hands don't drag along my, my legs. If I'm using dumbbells, they have to sort of drag against your legs. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but the dumbbell shrug is fine too. There's nothing complicated about uh, a regular standing shrug. So when you're doing a regular standing shrug with the barbell, what muscles are you hitting? Well, what's happening with the barbell is that you're, 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 you don't, you may not realize it, but you're actually forced to be pulled forward a little bit. The barbell is actually pulling you slightly forward, which means it's loading your erector spine, the muscles of your lower back, much more than is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, you, can, you can get a good trapezius workout using a barbell. Um, and certainly when the weight is light enough, it's not a risk to the lower back. But once you get into the heavier weights, um, it's, you, you have to understand that when you're doing a dumbbell shrug or a cable shrug and you're using enough resistance to adequately load those muscles, you're going to be compressing your spine anyway, right? So if you're using, let's say 60 pounds, 70 pounds in each hand, that's pulling your shoulder, your collarbone and your scapula and everything straight down and compressing your spine. So you, you already have some spinal stress, even if you're keeping your arms alongside your body, adding to that stress by having a slight forward pull because the bar is now in front of you is going, is going to increase the risk of injury. For biceps, the most important question today is the standing alternating cable curls or seated alternate dumbbell curls all we need for big arms? You know, a muscle has a, a specific set of requirements, the 16 factors. And, and once you meet those 16 factors, the muscle is getting all that it needs, all that it wants. When we switch from one exercise to the other exercise, we have to understand that we're changing the biomechanical profile of the exercise and what the bicep um, experience or any muscle experiences. So that's sort of the interesting thing is everyone you know, talks about this you know, confusion principle, the idea that you're keeping the muscle off guard. Well, that would be like switching from, let's say UV light when you're trying to tan to switching to incandescent light or neon light or infrared light. It's like, UV light works best. Switching it up doesn't work. Same thing with air. Air works best. Try breathing helium for variety. No, it won't work. You know, try breathing methane gas. No, it won't work, right? So what works best 
is what works best and what works best for the bicep is a simple standing alternating dumbbell curl, either with a hammer grip or with a palms forward grip or the same exercise standing alternating curls with cables. For triceps, you say decline dumbbell tricep extension or double cable tricep pushdowns facing away from the pulley. What do you say to compound zealots who swear the dip is superior for the triceps? Well, mathematically, you can prove it false. I mean, as I said, when you're doing parallel bar dips, and by the way, ladies who are doing bench dips and guys who are doing bench dips with, you know, stacks of 45 pound plates on their lap. This is ridiculous. The, the forearm lever limb is what is being operated by the tricep. And when that lever is mostly vertical, you're getting a, a tremendously reduced percentage of load on the muscle that's actually doing the elbow extending, which is the tricep. The upper arm bone, by the way, when you're doing parallel bar dips or bench dips, does get horizontal. And that's being operated by the front deltoid. So while you're adding all this weight to either parallel bar dips or, or bench dips, you're loading the front deltoid 10, 20 times more than you are the tricep. It's ridiculous. Um, the, the other thing that is, that's important is when we're working the triceps or the bicep, and the reason I mentioned both of these is because both of these muscles cross a secondary joint. They both cross the shoulder joint. So when people do things like a spider curl or an overhead cable curl, and they experience a different feeling, it, it, it's important for them to understand the difference that you're feeling is that you are changing the length of the bicep throughout the entire range of motion. So when you have your arm alongside your body, your bicep is at a certain length. If you were to move your, uh, your arm back, you're moving the insertion on the forearm farther away from the origin on the shoulder, which means you're elongating it. If you go the other direction, if you bring your arm in front of you or above you, you're shortening it. Now, there is such a thing as an ideal length for muscles to get optimum benefit. And that happens to be for the bicep when your arm is alongside your body. And same for the tricep, when your arm is close to the side of your body. So when you move your arm up, you change the distance, you shorten the distance or you lengthen the distance depending on which muscle you're talking about and you move it into a less than optimal position. So um, any kind of overhead tricep extension is foolish. The best way to work your triceps is with your arm, upper arm, mostly alongside your body, which is either a very decline dumbbell extension or uh, a type of tricep pushdown where your arms are close to the side of your body. But again, the direction of resistance matters. So when you're doing a tricep pushdown, a traditional, tries to push down, the direction of resistance is coming from slightly in front of you. And that means that your forearm and the cable will be almost parallel to each other in the starting position. Again, that's where the tricep is strongest. But when the lever of your body and the resistance are parallel to each other, you're getting zero. So it makes no sense to have an exercise that gives you zero resistance where you're strongest. So if you have the resistance coming from slightly behind you, meaning that you stand in a, in a position that lets that pulley be behind you instead of slightly in front of you, now you'll notice that your forearm is actually more perpendicular to that cable than it would be if it was the other way around. And that means you, you're loading the early phase of the range of motion. You're lightening up the late phase of the range of motion, which is matching the strength curve of the muscle, and you're going to get a much better benefit. I love both of those exercises. Should I be concerned at all that I'm not hitting the lateral head or the medial head or the long head of the triceps with just those two exercises? This is a myth. This, this whole idea that you can actually select what part of the tricep you can work or what part of the bicep you can work. The triceps and the bicep, but we're talking about the triceps right now, 
all three heads converge on one single tendon. And that tendon crosses the elbow joint and connects to the upper part of the forearm bone. And it has one function. The elbow is a hinge. There's no way that producing one motion can change the participation of any of those three parts of the muscle because they all use the same tendon to move the elbow. So some people would say, well, if you put your arms over your head and do an overhead tricep extension, you can work the long head. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one is that it's true that the long head stretches more when your arms are overhead, but there is no research and there's no logic. They would suggest that stretching a muscle more produces more growth. Number one. Number two is most people who do overhead tricep extensions don't even bottom out. They don't even take it down to the stretch position. So it's ridiculous to think that you're, that you're, you're going to get any kind of, you know, and, and by the way, just for the record, I've experienced this. I mean, I, I've been doing this for over 40 years. I competed in 19, excuse me, in 2014, uh, 2000, excuse me, 2019 um, in the Mr. Universe competition at the age of 59 doing only decline dumbbell tricep extensions and my tricep were every bit as good as they were in my earlier years when I used to think that following the traditional dogma made sense. I can attest to that. Those decline tricep extensions, you feel it. Well, I always tell people like if you, if you, let's say you worked your arms yesterday, it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Let's say today you're checking your tricep to see if they're sore. And so you're flexing your tricep. How do you flex your tricep with your arm down? Mm -hmm. You never flex your tricep with their arm up or the arm out. Your tricep knows where it contracts. It contracts with the arm close to the side. All your exercises should end where that muscle contracts the best. For forearm flexors, you like the seated barbell wrist curl or dumbbell wrist curls. And I've never been one to train forearms because I always felt like things like hammer curls and farmer's carries were enough. When you do a farmer's carry or when you're challenging your grip, certain muscles operate the fingers and certain muscles operate the wrist. Right, so the muscle that is the flexor muscle, the bigger inside part of the forearm is mostly a mover of the wrist. It's not a, a mover of the fingers. So you're not gonna get nearly as much forearm development unless you move the wrist, unless you do wrist flexion. When you're doing hammer curls, um, you're working the, the brachial radialis, which is on the other side of the forearm. It, it, it's on the extensor side. And as I explained in my book, the, the, the brachioradialis only crosses the elbow. It assists in elbow flexion, and that's all that it does. It does not cross the wrist, and so it does not participate in anything having to do with wrist curls or reverse wrist curls. So if you want a big forearm, you do hammer curls for the brachioradialis as well as the bicep because you can't eliminate the bicep participation, and you do some type of, 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 of wrist curl either with a barbell or with dumbbells. For abs, you like the seated cable ab crunch or ab crunches on an incline bench. Do you like to do these on the lat pull down facing away or what? Um, well, the lat pull down would have the, the cable be too high. Okay. You want the resistance to come straight across from the level of your head. Mm -hmm. So if you were doing a cable, a seated cable crunch, you would put the seat in front of a cable uh, facing away from the cable and then you would lower or raise depending on where the starting point of the pulley was so that it's right across from the level of your head. Mm. Then you put a, a, a rope handle on there, two rope ends, um, and then you grab the rope, you know, you have a seat, and then that, that way you're, the cable and your torso are perpendicular to each other. Mm. And again, that's the efficient angle to start at. You want the starting position to be perpendicular with resistance. 
And from that point forward, then you would do a spinal flexion, which is bending the spine so that you're bringing the rib cage, which is where the, the, the uh, abdominal muscle inserts toward the pelvis. You curve your spine. This idea of doing planks or this idea of doing you know, hip flexion exercises for the abs, it's wrong. You need to shorten the abdominal muscle to the rectus femoris. In order to do that, you need to bring the rib cage down toward the pelvis and then open that up so you can elongate that muscle. Same goes for the obliques, doing the cable side bends. Yeah, let me just quickly say that the incline crunch is probably a more accessible exercise for people than a seated cable crunch. And obviously it requires less setup. But for those of you that are at home listening to this or in the car, if you're lying on your, on your back, yes, you have a perpendicular resistance. Gravity is pulling straight down. Your torso is horizontal. But your torso typically weighs more than your abdominal muscles can actually contract with good form for enough repetition. So what ends up happening usually is people end up doing these neck crunches, these neck curls, and they're barely lifting the upper back off of the ground. But if you get on an incline bench, if you just take a, let's say a, a piece of wood that's maybe two feet wide by three feet long, and you just prop it up against an ottoman or a couch, couch might be too high, but an ottoman or a low stool. So you create a low incline, put your tailbone right at the base of that board and do your crunch from there, you'll have about a 20% reduction of the resistance which now allows you full range of motion and enough repetitions in order to adequately work that muscle. Um, obliques, same thing. If you're doing a dumbbell side bend and that dumbbell is obviously being pulled straight down by gravity, straight down is parallel to your torso. Parallel is the neutral angle for your lever to be in, for your, the, the lever that's being operated by your obliques, which is your torso, your spine. So what you wanna do is you wanna have that resistance coming from the side maybe like from the level of, your, let's say, the knee, a pulley or an elastic band or something, you anchor it about knee height or mid-thigh height, then you move away from it. So now the resistance is actually crossing your spine, which is the lever of your obliques, and now you have more efficient loading of the oblique muscle. And for lower back, how do we perform the seated or standing torso spinal extensions? It might be hard to explain this with just being audio only. Yeah, that's okay. The, the erector spinae, is the column of muscle that runs up along each side of our spine. So when we talk about working the lower back, what we're really talking about is working the entire erector spinae, which starts at the back of your pelvis, but goes all the way up to the, the base of your skull. You can't separate this muscle. You can't only work the lower part, but you do include the lower part when you do erector spinae exercise. And now what that muscle does is basically arches your back. The opposite of arching is rounding your back. So when you round your back, you get muscle elongation, which is one of the requirements. And then when you arch your back, you get muscle contraction, muscle shortening, which is the other part of the requirement. So imagine that you're sitting in a chair upright. The first thing I would tell people to do is just fold your spine forward, curl yourself into a little ball, then raise your chest up and arch your back. Now you're doing the right movement, but you are still vertical. Now imagine angling yourself 45 degrees forward, doing the exact same spinal bending and spinal arching. And then the best way to do it is to get up against the wall, put your feet about maybe a foot and a half away from the wall, your tailbone against the wall. Now angle, now angle your torso as far forward as you can, as close to horizontal as possible. Now do the same thing where you bend your spine forward and then you arch your spine up and lift your chest up. Now you're getting elongation and contraction of that erector spine. It's, far, far better than doing either a hyperstension lower back exercise or a deadlift. And all you have to do is stand up against the wall. 
All you have to do, yeah, it's one of the easiest things to do, but everyone who's done this, everyone who will do this will always say, I cannot believe how difficult that is, how much fatigue I feel on my rectus spiny, and yet it's so easy to do without having to load my spine to do it. For quads, you're a big fan of the sissy squats. What's your favorite way to do these? My favorite way to do this is with cables. Take a pair of cables. Of course, you can also do it with one cable, but it's easier with two cables. As low to the ground as possible, you stand back from the pulleys about um, a foot and a half, two feet. Um, and then you lean slightly back, obviously, because the weight is pulling you slightly forward. And then you just keep your tailbone from going back as you bend your knees. Mm. You're doing this limbo thing. And, and the, the reason why the cables are so good is because you're backward leaning. If you weren't holding onto the cables, obviously, you would actually fall back. That means your body weight, to some degree, is actually offsetting the weight you've selected. So that means that you can actually select a weight that is less than your body weight. And yet you still have the cable handles that help balance you. And yet you can also increase. So if you were to do, let's say, as I did them the other day with about 30 pounds on each cable, that's 60 pounds of forward downward resistance in addition to my body weight. And you do the math on that, you will see that in order to get the same amount of quadricep loading, you would have to do a barbell squat with about 250 or 300 pounds. That's how much quadricep loading you can get so easily without straining your spine and your, and your skeleton um, and get much more efficient loading of the muscle. Do you have tips for performing the sissy squat appropriately? Is it knees forward to initiate the movement? Well, the knees forward are essential. You cannot do the exercise unless you allow your lower leg to get as horizontal as possible. So that's the first thing that has to happen is your knees have to go way over your toes. That's number one. Number two is you have to keep your, your tailbone forward. What you can do is keep, you can try to keep your torso as in line with your upper thigh bone as possible. It doesn't have to be perfectly in line, but as much as possible, you lean back so that it's angling at, at about the same angle as your upper thigh bone, your femur. Um, and if, and certainly people will have problems with balance. So you can hold on to, uh, let's say a Smith machine bar or a pair of uh, dipping bars, or maybe even a squat rack, just hold on to that for balance and then lean back, let your, your knees go forward, let your hips go forward. Don't go any lower than is comfortable because the lower you go, the more horizontal that your, your lower leg gets, the bigger the load is. It's not just that it's the load isn't constant, right? It changes it with the relative, the angle relative to gravity. So start off by just doing slight, very slight um, forward tilting of the tibia of the lower leg bone. And then as you get progressively stronger, just challenge yourself more by trying to get lower and lower. And for the glutes, you say hip extensions on the multi-hip machine. What if we don't have access to this machine? Well, the best exercise, if you don't have that machine is a back lunge. So what happens is if you step forward lunge, then you're, you're, you're actually that, that direction of anatomical motion, which is a slight diagonal forward, will cross your lower leg more and load your quadriceps more. But if you step back, now you can actually load the glute of the front leg more because that upper leg bone is horizontal to gravity. The lower leg is mostly vertical. So it's mostly neutral. That means you're not loading your quadricep very much. Um, and the problem of this with this, of course, there's a couple of problems. One is the fact that you can't actually choose the weight that's right for you. It might be too light, it might be too heavy. If it's too light, you have to use dumbbells, but then you have the balance problem because you can't hold on to anything. If it's too heavy, all you can do is sort of, uh, you know, 
sort of regulate how far low you go. But, but uh, it is still the best way. And, and by the way, climbing steps or stepping up of a, uh, on a box, those are also great gluteus exercises. For hamstrings, why the seated leg curl machine over lying or standing? We talked about the bicep and the tricep earlier, the fact that certain muscles cross two joints and the hamstring is one of those muscles that crosses two joints. So um, for some of your audience members that might remember when leg curl machines used to be flat, mm -hmm. um, you certainly remember, and you can even experience it now just by testing it, that your hamstring sort of cramps when you're trying to do a, a knee flexion curl movement and your upper leg bone is parallel to your torso. That's because you've overshortened the hamstring. In order to get it at a, at, a, at a more comfortable length, you need to bend your hip. This is why leg extend, excuse me, leg curl machines now have a hump in it. They didn't used to have a hump in it, but it's still not enough of a hump. You need about a 90 degree angle bend in your hip in order to create the, the optimum length for that hamstring to be the most powerful, to not have this thing called active insufficiency, which is a, an overshortening of that muscle to have that be triggered. So you can do this with a seated leg curl machine, or you can do this with a seated, with just a cable where you set the cable at about chest high, you sit back on a chair, you put a, an ankle strap with a D ring and on your ankle and you connect the cable to it. And then you just bend your knee against the resistance of the cable from a seated position. For hip abductors, the inner thigh machine, and for calves, you like half extensions on the leg press machine. Do you do high reps on these or just keep it to the 12 to 15 or what? Uh, well, the hip abduction would be pushing out. Okay. Hip abduction would be pulling in. I, I generally don't recommend abduction. Abduction is uh, an exercise that works the gluteus, medius, and minimus, which are very small muscles on the upper outer part of your hip. They have almost no capacity for growth. If you're playing a sport that requires it, it might make some sense to work those muscles. But for the most part, you know, the only muscle that's really worth working is the adductors. Right. Adductors, the inner thigh machine. The inner thigh. And that's a huge muscle. It's a three-part muscle that participates in bringing the legs together, but also participates in hip extension, which is pushing downward, just like the glutes. They participate in, the, in that in hip extension. You will not lose fat on the inner thighs by doing a hip adduction inner thigh machine. You will not, the spot reduction never happens, can't happen, impossible physiologically. It's worth doing functionally, it's worth working the inner thigh muscles with, a, with an inner thigh machine, but you don't really have to worry about that because you're gonna get plenty of hip adduction just from your hip extension exercise. Okay, calves. Um, the calves are like any other muscle. Um, they require the same number of reps, the same number of sets for the most part. The mistake that some people make with calves, with, that most people make with calves, is they do little tiny bitty ranges of motion. They just, in fact, I've seen a lot of people stand on a block and yet their heels never go lower than their toes, hmm. which of course defeats the purpose of even standing on a block, right? The idea is full range of motion. You're gonna get much more benefit doing a full range of motion with even less weight than you would with partial range of motion and full weight or heavy weight, which is what people tend, People typically want to load the machine up and then they do this little itty bitty thing. And it's been proven time and time again that you can get far more development using less weight with full range of motion. And by the way, when you do full range of motion, you can't use a very heavy weight because obviously you have more muscle fatigue, more muscle challenge. 
And lastly, for hip flexors, standing alternating knee raise with ankle weights is optional or lying cable hip flexion. Do you think hanging leg raises or knee raises are more hip flexors than abs? Well, there's no doubt. I mean, the ab muscle doesn't even connect to the legs. Hmm. So when people do leg raises for the abs, they're completely wasting their time. Even toes to bar. Yeah, even toes to bar. Um, look, here's the thing is that the, the hip flexors, you know, basically they, their sole job is to bend the hip, is to flex the hip. So when you take, a, a, let's say you're hanging from a chinning bar and you're going to do knee flexion, uh, excuse me, hip flexion, that psoas, which is the primary hip flexor, originates on the lumbar spine, the front part of the spine. So when you pull your legs up, this psoas muscle pulls the spine forward. And it pulls it in the lumbar region, which is about six inches above the tailbone, which means that you're actually causing your lower back to arch by the activation of the psoas. But the abdominal muscles are trying to do the opposite. The abdominal muscles are trying to pull your tailbone under. They're trying to create a rounding of the back. So any kind of leg raise that is meant for the purpose of abs is creating an immediate conflict of interest because the hip flexors actually prevent the abdominal muscles from doing the job they want to do, which is to bring the spine as far forward or the tailbone as far under as it can. So um, if you bring your, your, your feet all, you know, toes to the bar, it's a hard exercise, but we, we shouldn't mistake what is hard, what is difficult with what is effective. What is effective for the abs is spinal flexion without interference, i.e. crunch. What is effective for the hip flexors is hip flexion with, a, with an arched spine, not with a flexed spine. So if you wanted to do, let's say, one of those Roman chair where you suspend yourself by the elbows and you want to do an alternating bent knee hip flexion exercise, that would be fine for the hip flexion. It is not a good ab exercise. It, it can never be. If you want to hang from a chinning bar and do alternating, that's fine. You should never lift your legs up at the same time together. Unless, of course, you're training for a particular sport or a particular activity, but, um, but they interfere with each other. So if you want maximum hip flexor benefit, don't involve the abs and vice versa. And if you do with a straight knee, you have this added problem, which is that when the knee is straight, the, the hamstring stretches and the hamstring stretch creates this thing called passive insufficiency, which interferes with the activity that's trying to happen on the opposite side of that limb. Now let's imagine that tomorrow you go to the gym and train biceps. Are you going to do 14 to 18 sets of the superior exercise, like the standing alternating cable curls and call it a day? Each muscle only needs one exercise. Mm -hmm. How many sets you want to do or can do is a different story. In other words, I'm not saying everyone should do two or 14 sets, but um, people should start off with um, everyone should do just one exercise at the most two um, of the ones that are on the Brig 20 list. Uh, and they should do somewhere between three sets for each muscle and 14, 16 sets if you're on the very, very high end uh, of your current development and also uh, you're, you're very goal-oriented and you have a lofty goal to pursue. But how many sets you do depends on a number of factors, including your age, your health, your current condition, the frequency of your workouts, the intensity of each set, et cetera. I have to ask about cardio. Do you like to do zone two training or hit workouts or sprints? Yeah, I, I love the way that feels. Um, and I love the idea that, you know, training cardiovascularly helps me 
stay fit enough to do bike rides with friends or hikes with friends. Whereas if I didn't do it, you know, then, you know, here I am this muscular guy that doesn't have the endurance to keep up. That's kind of embarrassing, but, um, and there, there are un, undoubted, uh, no doubt benefits health-wise to doing cardiovascular exercise. You get a reduction in the uh, low-density lipoproteins, the low LDLs, cholesterol, increase in the HDL. These are all good for cardiovascular health. Um, but you have to understand that there's a balancing act, right? There's time and there's also energy limits. Mm -hmm. So the more time that you spend doing resistance exercise, the less time and energy you'll have left over to do cardio. So uh, if, you're, if your optimum goal is short-term um, development, if you say you're getting ready for a bodybuilding competition or you're getting ready for a high school reunion or something like that, and you want to look as muscular as possible, um, then I would maximize the resistance exercise and minimize the cardio. You don't need cardio in order to lose body fat unless you have an especially lethargic metabolism then it does help. But I, I've gotten leaner not doing cardio exercise than I have when I was doing cardio exercise. All right, Doug, if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? Oh God, like, <laughs> I have uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond. I have The Believing Brain by Michael Shermer, The Story of the Human Body by Daniel Lieberman. And, and I'm currently reading um, The Body, which is by uh, Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson was also the author of a book called A Short History of Nearly Everything. Um, I think he's my favorite author just because he doesn't only maximally inform, but does it in the most colorfully articulate way. Mm, I'm with you on that. Now, last question. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? <laughs> and anyone in history, that, that almost assumes that they have to be dead. Um, I don't know. I think Christopher Hitchens was fantastic. But, <laughs> but I think maybe Bill Bryson. I mean... I am so impressed with his ability to grasp all the science that he talks about without actually having been a PhD student of science. It's, it's, it is overwhelming the amount of information that he delivers. It's just, I cannot get enough of it. Well, I love your enthusiasm, Doug. This was really an interesting conversation. Where do you want people to go to connect with you? Well, my website is DougBrignoli.com. Um, you can email me at dbfitness at AOL.com. Smart Training 365 is the online site where we have our, our courses and our videos. Uh, and that's about it. Uh, the book, my book is called the, um, the Physics of Resistance Exercise. You can get it at Amazon or you can get it from my website. Perfect. I'll have links to the book in the show notes below. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakova.